Well, good evening, everyone. It's a joy and privilege to be with you all this evening. Um, we're going to start by reading all of John chapter 15. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to John chapter 15, the Gospel of John. I will read it, we will pray, and then we'll get into the passage. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse of their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. 
Ah, you guys are Anglicans. You don't do that in Baptist churches, do you? Do you? Oh, you do. Okay, good. Let's pray. Father, again, as Dr. Haken prayed, we thank you for your word. Your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask and pray now that by your spirit, you would do what only you can do. Confirm and strengthen us in all goodness. Convict us of sin. Lead us into all truth. Truth that's not an idea or an abstraction. Truth that is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. By the end of our time together, we ask and pray that we would love him more dearly and trust him more deeply. We commit this time to you for the glory of his name. Amen. So friends, I... Um, Actually, I just, I have to say, it's weird to, to speak with your picture in the background, especially when it's a picture from like 10 years ago. I think I need to get an updated headshot because like people are like, who is that guy with all that hair? Anyway, um, I was assigned the topic tonight, the spirit of truth. And as I was thinking through the topic and preparing, it struck me that in a room like this, we run the risk of spending the next 50 minutes vehemently agreeing. You know what I mean? It's like the very definition of preaching to the choir. And so you might rightly think, well, then why do we do something like this? Right? If we, if we are all going to agree, if we're all going to sit and nod our heads and maybe yell the occasional amen, why do we do this? Well, friends, I think it's of great value times like this. The value in a time like this is the value of exploring refining and remembering, reminding and rehearsing our own souls of something that we already know is true. Look, you know intuitively that that's really important because you come to church every Sunday and hear the gospel. We are prone to forget. We're prone to forget the truth. We are all too quick to forget the gospel. If you're anything like me, you go to church on Sunday morning, you either preach the gospel or you hear it preached, and you get out to your car, and by the time you've reached the highway, you've forgotten the gospel when the guy cuts you off. Right? You, you have this default setting that brings you back and, and keeps bringing you away from, and so we need to set times like this aside to explore, refine, and rehearse the truth. I think another reason that we do this is because in our culture today, we are inundated with a pagan religion called secularism. Information is bombarding us constantly, 24 hours a day, either through our cell phones or social media or television or whatever. We are being indoctrinated and discipled in a secular worldview. And so moments like this where we pause and gather around God's word are critically important. I was talking to a Christian brother recently who said that his concern was that young people in particular who are inundated through social media with secular worldview, he said, you know, what chance do we have in the church when we get to disciple them for maybe an hour on Sunday? Or if they're raised in Christian homes, 
Perhaps they'll do a devotional right after supper. How can that ever compete with 24-7 indoctrination and secular paganism? But I want to encourage you with this truth. It's not a numbers game. Truth carries with it its own weight. It has a gravity. The truth of God's word is, what did the writer to the Hebrews say? Living, active, sharper than any two-edged social media screen. But you know what I mean. And so we need to constantly revisit truth, remind ourselves, and let it do its work. This lecture series that Dr. Haken has organized, I think, is very timely. If you're paying attention, you'll know that truth is, in fact, the battlefield these days. This question of epistemology for eggheads, right, if that's the word you like to use. How do we know what we know? How do we make truth claims? On what grounds? Well, the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, has been shaped by this, I don't want to get into that, but it's been shaped by paganism and given an air of wisdom, makes self-claims of cleverness, claims to be tolerant, claims to be loving, and presents itself as sophisticated. Now, experts in sociology will debate what do we call this present age in which we find ourselves? Um, hands up if you're familiar with the term postmodern. Have you heard that before? Right. Well, there was a time when the experts said that we are living in a postmodern age. Those experts are now debating each other and they're saying it's not postmodern, it's post postmodern, it's a modern, it's, and they're coming up, they're just trying to sell books. The point is the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, is marked by three things. And, and again, when I tell you, you're going to say, I intuitively knew that, R.D., okay? The spirit of our age is marked by relativism. It's marked by indeterminacy. And it's marked by polyvalence. Now, those are just fancy words. Let me tell you what I mean by those. Relativism says, you have your truth and I have mine. There is no such thing as capital T objective truth. Indeterminacy says that even if a truth were to exist, even if there were such thing, we could never possibly know it. Truth is defined by social groups and they create norms and then they reinforce them with positive feedback. And so if truth even exists, it's indeterminate. Who could ever say what it is? Right? That's indeterminacy. A third marker of the zeitgeist is polyvalence. Polyvalence is this um, claim that things can be mutually exclusive and both still remain true. Have you heard things like that, right? You can hold together things that are disparate and actually 
contradict one another, and they can both be simultaneously true. Well, these are the three things that mark this age, the spirit of this age, whatever you call it. Relativism, indeterminacy, and polyvalence. The spirit of the age is something like the air that we breathe. Charles Taylor called it the wallpaper in the house that you've lived in for 50 years. You're so familiar with it that you don't even know that it's there. It's like a default setting that's left unchecked. The spirit of the age, unless we are critical about it and bring the scriptures to bear upon it, it can be like fish who are living in a fish tank and can't even tell you that water exists. Right? They're just, it's ubiquitous. It's all around them. That's the age that we live in. Marked by these three things. These three claims concerning truth. And yet as Christians, each of those three claims are an affront to our biblical worldview. There are a lot of presenting symptoms, right, in the culture these days that go against Scripture. But fundamentally, as I said, the battlefield is that of truth. We are facing a relentless assault, this cultural tsunami wave that's washing across us. And if we do not recognize it, and intentionally hold fast, we will find that we, along with the world, are swept away and swept along with evil. Because the Bible tells us that truth does exist. Truth exists. That truth is knowable. And that truth is exclusive. Ultimately, we see in the scriptures that truth is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this from God's word this evening. In particular, we're going to zero in on the helper, the spirit of truth. We're told that he proceeds from the Father, he is promised and sent by the Son, We could actually this evening say that a discussion like this is needed tonight more than ever. But is that true? Is this the first time in history that truth has come under attack? Right? If we, if we claim that, we are being historically and biblically myopic. If you listen to some preachers these days, they would tell you things like, the world is the worst that it's ever been, right? Well, I wanna, I wanna remind us of two things, okay? Truth is being assaulted. There is a cultural tsunami washing over. The stakes are very high, but these are not the worst times that have ever been. First, 
if we believe that these are the worst days ever, then maybe we have an anemic view of God. Look, as Christians, we believe that every era, every season, moves under the sovereign hand of God. Are you familiar with a missionary named John G. Patton? Anyone? Yeah, a few. Owen, extra points on your internship. John G. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, an island of cannibals. The missionary journey that went to this island, these islands before him, was met with apparent disaster. Those missionaries were killed, cooked, and eaten. John G. Patton went there with his wife. His wife had a child. I won't ruin the story. You should really read the biography. And he was met with all kinds of hardship and difficulty in this missionary journey. And yet he reminded himself that this was not abnormal. This was not the worst of times. But instead it was biblically normal. Because in the face of his hardship, in the face of the hardship against gospel truth and gospel ministry, John G. Patton said, the hand pierced at Calvary now sways the scepter of the universe. We have to remember, when we start feeling bad for ourselves in this cultural moment, that in fact, God is in control. And we get the kings, prime ministers, premiers, leaders that we deserve. Sometimes it's for our blessing and sometimes it's for our rebuke. So when you look at the rising darkness and deception in the West, when you look at this moment where it feels like the Judeo-Christian epistemology and commitment to truth is under attack, you must remember that this is far from the first time that this has happened. You can look back in history and see it many other times throughout history. You can also just look in the Bible and see that rebellion against our good God and King that is typified by this perversion of truth happens regularly. There are plenty of cases in scripture where vice is celebrated and virtue is scorned. Look, if you have your Bible open, I wanna, I wanna point this out before we get into John 15. So look at Isaiah 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is exactly what was happening. In the list of woes, you'll see that woes are pronounced upon all who draw with cords of falsehood. To wage war on truth is to bring the very woes of God upon you. It's what we're seeing in our world today in the West, but it's nothing new. Isaiah goes on and describes these people and he says that they are so committed to falsehood. They've rejected truth to such a great extent that they call evil good and good evil. They're living in an upside down world. 
They've so rejected truth that they've inverted darkness and light. They've put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here's, here's my point. It's legitimate and good for us to acknowledge that darkness appears to be rising all around us. But never to take on a martyr complex. Like this is the first time that truth has ever been assailed. In fact, as Christians, we read passages like this one in Isaiah 5 and we realize that in these moments when it appears that the entire world is flipped upside down, calling good evil, evil good, the real problem is that we are living under the wrath of God. When truth is being attacked and undermined, we're living under the wrath of God and it's a call to repentance. And so as Christian men and women, we bear witness to that, right? That's, that's how we see it. That's what we tell people and we call everyone to repentance. But we never act like, oh, poor us. We just happen to find ourselves in the worst time in history, the very first time that truth has ever been assailed. Truth will be rejected and lies will be embraced until Christ returns for his bride. That's the first thing. It's, it's biblically normal. The second thing that we need to remind ourselves when we feel like this is the worst time ever in human history or in the history of the West, um, we have to remind ourselves that the gospel has always been the power of God for salvation. Look, the battle for truth is nothing new. It's always been the case. And that's evidenced by the fact that the remedy has not changed. The gospel comes to a lost, unmoored world like a North Star. It comes to a lost, unmoored world like a cardinal fixed point before which we course correct and repent and with respect to which we orient and navigate. So it's timely that we're talking about truth, but I want to start off this evening by suggesting that it's always timely for Christians to consider the importance of truth. You know, as things are shifting, in the culture all around us. And as it's more and more the case that we as Christians are no longer playing a home game in the West, we could look at it and say, well, clearly the enemy is, you know, ramping things up, right? And wickedness appears to be on the rise. But actually, that may be true. But in some cases, it's generating the opposite to the enemy's intended desired outcome. Have you noticed that? I just want to share anecdotally with you um, in our church in Burlington, in Northeast Burlington, the fastest growing demographic is 20-year-old young men. Why is that? Well, it's because these young men have largely been raised through the public school system. They've had their heads held underwater. They've been fed nothing but lies. And even though they aren't Christians, there's something in their being that they know that what they're being told is not true. 
They look at the rise of wickedness and evil around them. They look at the fact that they're being told that they must say things that they know are not true. And it launches them out on a search for what is true and what is good. It would appear that screw tape has overplayed his hand, right? The slow road to hell was working just fine. But with the rise of wickedness, with the abandonment of truth, it's brought so many of these young guys in particular out of their slumber. They're saying, what is truth? We need to find truth. And so they end up coming to church via Jordan Peterson. <laughs> right? That's like, Jordan Peterson is like the gateway drug to the gospel. <laughs> these guys come and they're like, Finally, someone has given them some purpose and some meaning and some semblance of truth and order, Jordan Peterson. But then when they come to church, we tell them, look, Jordan Peterson's good, but if Jordan Peterson is all that you have, you're going to die with a good-looking corpse and a tidy room, and you're going to go to hell. You need the gospel. That's truth. They need to be born again. They need to be saved. It's only the truth of the gospel that can do that. So friends, as we're exploring this evening the spirit of truth, I want to set the stage for you in these two ways. First of all, it's normal for Christians to have to hold the standard for truth. The second thing is that the stakes are eternally high. And may the Lord Jesus Christ tonight strengthen our convictions on that. Amen? There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And at the core of that is this question of truth. Is it, is there such thing as truth? Is it knowable? And is it exclusive? Flip back over to John 15. Verse 26. Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Is there such thing as truth? Is it knowable? Is it exclusive? Well, Jesus certainly thought so. Let's jump right in. We're going to move through all 27 verses quickly because we're convinced that this is the word of God. Amen? And the, the best way to identify falsehood and recover truth is to become so steeped in Scripture that the warp and woof of Scripture forms and shapes the logic of our life. To become so committed to the word of God that the grammar of Scripture becomes the logic of our life. Any time you spend in God's word is not wasted. I want to look at this in three chunks. The very first is verses 1 to 11. You are familiar with this passage. It's Jesus talking about the vine and the branches and the vine dresser. In verses 1 to 6, you'll note that the truth is that there is a union between Christ and his people. The parable that Jesus uses, the metaphor, is that of a branch and its vines. 
that we are the branches and he is the vine. Now, Jesus goes on in this teaching to tell us something else that's true. That not all vines, sorry, not all branches are fruitful. Not all Christians, not all people who call themselves Christians are fruitful. And so Jesus says there is a vine dresser. The father comes and he prunes and he cuts off the fruitless branches. He says even the branches that are bearing fruit, the vine dresser is so committed to their fruit bearing that he is going to prune them so that they'd produce more fruit. And so in verse six, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Look, friends, here is the truth. Here is what the spirit of truth reveals. That there are only two options for Christian men and women. Fruitfulness or fire. There is no neutral position. The fruitful Christian lives abiding in the vine in the sun and they do so, they're fruitful because they are drawing strength and sap from the vine. From the commands, from the words of Jesus. This is the truth. There is no fruitfulness to be found anywhere but in Christ. Otherwise, you'll be found fruitless and cut off. Jesus goes on and he further elucidates this truth. He says, fruitful branches glorify the Father, verse 8. Verse 11, he says, fruitful branches, fruitful Christians, bring joy to the Son. They also bring joy to the branch. Did you ever think about a branch being joyful? And yet here it is. And so, friend, here's the truth for you this evening. If you find that you are lacking joy in your Christian walk, the question set before us in these 11 verses, are you drawing sap and strength from the vine? Are you abiding in him? Verse 10. Is it your chief aim to keep his commandments and to abide in his love? Look at verses 12 to 17. In verses 12 to 17, we see that truth is loving. That's a point that needs to be underscored, 14-point font, bold italics. Truth is loving. I had a conversation just the other day with a young man who asked me this question. He said, is tolerance a Christian virtue? What do you think? Is it? My answer to him was no. In fact, tolerance is a cheap, secular counterfeit for the Christian virtue of love. You know, the world tells us this lie 
that what we really need to do is just tolerate one another to the ignoring of truth. But a Christian man or woman knows that that's not actually how you get along. Not tolerating, but love. See, love cautions, love warns, love pleads, turn back from destruction. How many here this evening are parents? Any? Yeah. So perhaps you can think of a time where one of those little human beings that you love more than life itself was doing something that would lead to their demise or their destruction. Let's say little Johnny was about to run out into the middle of the street and there was a school bus coming the opposite direction. Would love say to little Johnny, little Johnny, I understand your desire to run out in the middle of the street. God made you that you want to play on streets. Why don't you just go for it? I'm going to tolerate that. Or out of love, would you scream to little Johnny and plead with him to turn back? Because where he's going only leads to death and destruction. You see, love finds its basis in truth. And truth is loving. So this is what the Lord Jesus commanded. Look at verse 13 a love that is rooted in the very gospel of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This love that is commanded by God is the love that we see put on display on the cross, where Jesus, sharing this in chapter 15, he's only hours away from being arrested. He's very soon going to be nailed to a Roman cross and killed. He's going to die for the sins of all of God's people. And he's preparing his disciples. He's saying, this truth that is loving, that is the mark of the Christian, is going to be fully seen expressed in this moment. Greater love has no one than to lay down his life. Behold, this is love. The kind of love that shows us a God who does not kill rebels, but dies for them and makes a way of amnesty so that they can be reconciled to their God. Friends, that's truth. Truth lived out in love. He goes further. Jesus tells his disciples that this ultimate act of love that's going to be put on display in just a few hours on the cross, he cautions them against potential errors that might come to them. He knows that the disciples are going to look at Jesus on the cross, this self-sacrificing love put on display. He's going, they're going to see this substitutionary penalty where he pays the price that they owe but they might draw the wrong conclusion and be mistaken. They might look at that and say, oh, I see Jesus paying that price. I'm going to choose 
that for myself. What did Jesus say? Look at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You see, as Christian men and women who are committed to the fact that truth exists, it's knowable and it's exclusive. If we believe that we came to that conclusion because we were clever or smart and figured it out, then the truth that we bear witness to would not be loving, it would be arrogant. This reminder in verse 16 is what keeps our truth loving and humble. This truth that the most important things about me as a Christian man have nothing to do with what I do for God, but what God has done for me in Jesus. I didn't choose him. He chose me. Verses 18 to 25. So a truth that is loving, right? You'd say, well, surely this kind of truth ultimately displayed in the self-sacrificing of Jesus, surely that kind of truth would be welcomed and received by the world around you, wouldn't it? But look at verses 18 to 20. The answer is no. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. Jesus is telling the disciples a truth that you might know from personal experience. That the gospel of truth will put you at odds and at enmity with the world around you. When you proclaim even this loving truth, you will often be met with angst and ire, just as Jesus was. And so here we see that persecution is biblically normal for all of those who've been chosen by God in Jesus, in his love. You'll be persecuted by the world, John says, because the world lives in sin, in lies. Jesus goes even further in this, and he says that those lies are not just self-deception, but that they demonstrate a deep hatred for the Father and for the Son. Look at verse 23. How does that work? Well, when we share the truth of the gospel, we go out into the world and we tell people about Jesus and we're met with hostility. Well, if you're doing it right, you're gonna be met with a measure of hostility. Far too often what people call evangelism is actually just going around trying to win people over to warm pews in churches. But the biblical view of evangelism is an affront to a lost, lying world. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes his 
evangelical ministry, his ministry of sharing the gospel in this way. He says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. See, that's the truth of the gospel, that there is a Lord who holds sway. There is a Lord who holds all prerogatives to tell us what to love, what to abhor, how to live, where to spend our money, what to do with our bodies. And that's a truth that is an affront to a world that's bent on hating the Father and the Son. In that posture, the world stands guilty. Verse 25, guilty of hating him without a cause. Now we're at our key verses, 26 to 27. One of my great heroes, J.C. Ryle, cautions that we should deal with these two verses very carefully. The spirit of truth. These are verses that have become critical in the recent debates around the Trinity. But they were also verses that were interpreted differently and very important in the discussions between the Eastern and the Western Church and their subsequent division. J.C. Ryle says, and I think he's wise, that we should stick to simply what the text says, no more and no less. Far too often, we as Christians come to a biblical text and what we do is we read it and then we superimpose our own systematic theology on top of it so that it proof texts our views. Here's what this, these two verses simply say. First thing, there is a helper. Do you see that in verse 26? Secondly, the son promises to send him. Third thing, that this helper proceeds from the father. So what can we conclude about this spirit of truth? Well, we see in this that the spirit of truth is not just a mere sentiment. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not even an it, but it's a person. I remember one time I was attending a church that'll remain nameless, but you can imagine when I tell you the story. And the preacher who was preaching um, was talking about the Holy Spirit. And she said, um, the Holy Spirit is like that moment when you're putting together a puzzle and the puzzle piece just falls into place. Well, that's like the Holy Spirit. Man, I wish I'd have just stood up and walked out when she said that, but I didn't. Far too often we reduce the spirit of truth to just a feeling or a sentiment. But in scripture, we see that this spirit of truth is none other than the third person of the Trinity. God. We're told by Jesus in these verses that the spirit of truth, he comes. Actually, more specifically, he is sent. And he's sent with a purpose. Do you see that in the text? What is his purpose? Say it out loud. To help. That's right. To help. See, the fact of the matter is, as Christians, 
we would have no hope of ever knowing the truth apart from the work of the Spirit. That's the role of the Spirit of truth. It is the Spirit of truth that shows you who you truly are before a holy God. It's the Spirit of truth that convicts you of your sin. It's the Spirit of truth that helps you by after showing you your sin, doesn't leave you in despair, but shows you the glory of a savior. That's the spirit of truth. Sent, promised by the son, sent to help you. Verses 26 to 27. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Here, what does it say? He will bear witness to me. See, that's the work of the Spirit of truth. To bear witness to Jesus. And is that where the work of the Spirit of truth ends? Verse 27. And you also will bear witness by that same spirit of truth. So, so let's pause for a moment just to gather gains around these couple of key verses. The spirit of truth has the purpose of helping. God does not wish for any of us to remain in darkness, but to be helped by the spirit. And so Jesus has sent the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father to do a primary task, to bear witness to Jesus so that you may in turn also bear witness. That's the helper. Let me say this in another way. If you're sitting here tonight and you would say, R.D., I know the truth of the gospel. I know the truth of who Jesus is as my Lord and Savior. That's not because you're clever or smart. It's because the spirit of truth has revealed Jesus to you. It's the same helper who is empowering you to bear witness to Jesus with others. So friends, here, here is our North Star. Here is our cardinal point on the compass. In a world that is awash at sea, truth exists. Truth that is not an idea or an abstraction, but a person. Truth is knowable. We're told that the helper is going to bear witness to the person who is truth, Jesus. Remember, the world is telling you that truth doesn't exist. We say truth does exist. It's a person of Jesus. The world tells you truth is not knowable. Jesus is saying the helper is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to help you. He's going to lead you into truth, truth that is a person, me. And truth that is exclusive, Verse 27 finishes and he says, 
you're going to bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So how does that work around exclusivity? Well, throughout Jesus' life, he made claims that were exclusive. Just a chapter ago, he made exclusive claims. And so the picture that's forming here is that it is the spirit of truth that bears witness to the truth, the truth that is the person of Jesus, who is knowable by the spirit of truth, causing you to believe and know, and to know that his truth claims are exclusive. This is the spirit of truth. We've been sort of walking around the outside of it, but I want to say it clearly now. The truth that the spirit of truth helps us into is the gospel. The good news of God's love for us in Jesus. See, the spirit of truth is the only one that can teach you by the word of God that the Father set his affection upon you from before the foundation of the world. That the Son has purchased your pardon on the cross 2,000 years ago, dying the death that was yours. That the Holy Spirit is the one that has granted you the faith to believe and to repent and to be born again. This is all the work of the spirit of truth. The spirit that bears witness to Jesus. We in turn bear witness by the spirit of truth. And what does that mean? Well, if we bear witness by the spirit of truth, it means at the very least that we as Christians have that as our lens. That when we look out over the entire world, we see it through the lens of the spirit of truth, the spirit of the gospel. It's how we see everything and everyone. It anchors our hope when diff times are difficult. It shapes our worldview and our response when we're met with challenges. I think it's possible to err in at least one of two ways as it relates to truth. They are equal and opposite. Okay, the one, the one way is to deny truth, to deny its existence, its knowability, and its exclusivity. That's the one way. But there aren't many in this room tonight, I suspect, who run the risk of doing that. We are more prone to making the equal and opposite error as it relates to truth. To misconstrue the truth of the gospel for social conservatism. Friends, we as Christians are people of the spirit of truth. We are not socially conservative. Fundamentally. Our Truth might overlap with certain political views or political platforms, but fundamentally we are not conservatives. We're people of the truth, of the gospel. And so we don't go around trying to tell other people 
how they should live their lives in order to control them. That's the accusation against social conservatives. Instead, as people of the truth who are helped by the spirit of truth, we hold out what is true because we believe that what is true is what is good. We believe that what is true is what is best for human flourishing. That's maybe too abstract. Let me give you an application. In this moment, as it appears as though the West is turning in on itself, there are two hot button issues that are presenting symptoms of that perversion. The one hot button issue is the issue of abortion. We live in a world and in a time where most Canadians believe that it is a virtue to live in a society where babies are murdered in the womb. Another issue that's a hot button issue that is a presenting symptom of this perversion of truth is the LGBTQ agenda and all that comes with it. And how then do we as gospel people approach those two issues? Well, I, I want to suggest to you this evening that we approach them by the spirit of truth, by the gospel of Jesus, and bear witness to Jesus. We don't approach them through debate and through lobby groups. Let, let me tell you what I mean. If you are a person of the spirit of truth, you will find yourself in a conversation with someone on one of those two issues and you might find yourself feeling a little bit frustrated. You might be in a conversation like that and you say, how can the person truly think that abortion is okay? How can they not see that it's wicked and evil and leads to destruction and death? You might be talking to someone and say, how can they truly believe that the promotion of LGBTQ agenda is in the best interest of children? and people in general? How can, how, can they, how can they not see that that's leading to death and destruction? But when you've been helped by the spirit of truth, friends, you're gonna ask the opposite question. You're gonna say, how could they ever hope to see the truth? They haven't been born again. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to show you. That what Jesus told Nicodemus is true. Unless you've been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And so while there are some people who are pro-abortion or pro-LGBTQ, who may in fact be motivated by evil and seeking to steal, kill, and destroy on behalf of the evil one, those people are few and far between. Most people who are promoting those two agendas they're nice people, they're kind, they're Canadian. They're doing what they think is best because they've never been born again. They've never been born of the spirit of truth. Look, when you see that approach and you make that distinction, you say, look, I am not fundamentally socially conservative. I'm a person of the spirit of truth. 
I see that what people actually need is to be born again so that they can see the kingdom of God, so they can see truth. That's going to change your approach. You're going to see that those people are not fundamentally wicked or evil, right? They're just not saved. They're not regenerate. They need to be born of the Spirit. This is the truth. That all people need to be born again before they can see the kingdom of God. And this commitment will change our approach. We'll be less likely to debate and lobby and more likely to give ourselves to witnessing to Jesus. Friends, may we constantly renew our convictions by the Spirit that the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation. And may we ever witness to the Son by the Helper, by the Spirit of truth. Let me pray for us, and then I think we have a time of Q&A. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the work of the Spirit of truth that bears witness to Jesus. Apart from the work of your Spirit, we couldn't even read the scriptures rightly. We thank you for the work of the Spirit of truth that convicts us and shows us of our own sin and shows us our need for a Savior and shows us Jesus as our glorious Lord and Savior. I pray, God, that you would give us a sensitivity to that Spirit of truth as we move out into a world that is in desperate need of the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.